was made and he's gathered us together again to be his church, to sing. Reading from Isaiah chapter 12, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and I will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song and he has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And you will say in that day, Give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel.
ask you to receive our praise this morning. We sing with grateful hearts, Lord. Thankful for your love. Humbled, Lord, that you would send your son for us. We sing with broken hearts this morning. Lord, we want to be a holy people, a faithful people to all that you've asked us to be. And so, Father, we ask in Jesus' name, by your spirit, the strength of your spirit, that we would be the church, Lord. We would be the people that you would have us be during these times. To share the good news of the gospel with people around us. Lord, strengthen us. Strengthen us, Holy Spirit, as we sing, as we sing of that day that is coming. As we sing about when you left, you promised that you were preparing a place for us to be forever and always gathered around your throne with, with all the saints, all the angels, all the creatures of heaven, joining in with the song of heaven, giving you praise, giving you glory. So Father, receive our worship, receive our praise as we join in with the song of heaven.
with you this Lord's Day. I invite you to take God's Word and return with me to the book of Philippians chapter 4. And as you are finding your way there, I invite you, I encourage you to try to guess uh, what I am describing for you. Try to guess what I am describing for you. It consumes us. When it gets hold, it won't let go. It captivates our thoughts and it overruns our emotions. It dampens our joy and disrupts our peace. It wraps its tentacles around our souls, tightening its grip until it saps us of all strength. It keeps us from eating it keeps us from sleeping. It keeps us from enjoying those good gifts which God so graciously bestows upon us. Have you got it? Do you think you know what I'm describing? Let me press on. Pay careful attention. It hinders us. When it has us in its clutches, we aren't much fun to be around. It strains relationships in the home it strains relationships in the church among brothers and sisters. On top of that, it makes us so inward-looking that it renders us useless when it comes to serving others. It puts us on edge. It makes us inattentive, unresponsive, and unsympathetic. You've probably guessed what I'm describing, but let me just press on and describe it for you from one additional angle. Not only does it consume us, not only does it hinder us, but it deceives us. It promises to help us, but it never contributes one iota to resolving any of our problems. It doesn't provide any sound advice or deep insight. It doesn't render any peace or comfort. It takes all of our time and produces nothing. It takes all of our energy and renders nothing. It takes and takes and takes. And it gives absolutely nothing in return. And so what am I describing for you? It is simply this, worry, or at times what we call anxiety. I don't know where I got this definition from, not my words, but it is a, a wonderful description of the very nature and essence of worry. And so this unnamed author put it this way, worry is a small trickle of fear that meanders through the mind until it cuts a channel into which all other thoughts are drained. 
if left unchecked, worry leads to a loss of focus, a loss of energy, a loss of appetite. It leads to nervousness, irritability, panic, weariness, insomnia, hypersomnia, and the list goes on and on and on. And I want to imagine for a moment that um, there you are as you sit in your home, that um, this is resonating with you. This is striking a chord. That as you look back on your life, you are right now thinking to yourself, hey, yeah, that describes me. That is something I have struggled with. That is something I have wrestled with on occasion, perhaps a lot, as I look back on my life. It may very well be, as you sit there right now, this describes who you are presently. This is a current struggle. This is a current battle, worry, anxiety, fear. It has you in its clutches. And yes, you get it. There is that trickle of fear in your mind meandering that has cut this deep channel into which all of your thoughts, all of your attention, all of your energy just seems to be draining into it. And worry, fear has the better of you. And it is consuming you. And let's imagine, let's just imagine, completely hypothetical speaking. I mean, the room is empty here as I preach. I have my wife, Allison. She's right there front and center, quite the trooper. She's come with me today in an audience of one, actually an audience of two, because there's Andrew back in the, in the sound board there, keeping his eye on everything. But uh, I, I'm just imagining you there at home, and you've heard this, and this is resonating with you, and you get it. And you recognize, you acknowledge that this has been a problem for me. This is a problem currently for me. And so let's, let's imagine you were to come to me or, or give, me, give me a call or send me an email and say, you, you know, that this, this, this is a problem. I acknowledge it as a problem and it's something I want to address. Um, what would I say to you? What would my response be? What words of, of counsel would I offer to you? Well, the first thing I would do is this. Uh, I would read to you from Philippians chapter 4. It's the text that you have found in your Bible, in God's Word. And it's the text I want to read for us now. I'm going to read from verse 2 all the way through to verse 13. But what we're really concerned with today are verses 6 through 9. So give them careful attention as we get there in our reading. And think, think of this context now, this foundation that I've set. And imagine this scenario that this is something you're struggling with. And you've come to me and you've, you've just sort of, you've raised it. And you're looking for some counsel. You're looking for, for biblical wisdom. Well, listen carefully now to the word of the Lord. I entreat Yodia, writes Paul, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Now pay careful attention, verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything, 
But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Now that I am speaking of being in need, for not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So that is our text. We began our study of it last Lord's Day, and we made our way through verses 2 through 5. Today, we're going to concentrate on verses 6 through 9. And next Sunday, Lord willing, we'll finish it off, verses 10 through 13. But what we're really concerned with here is this, this issue of worry, this problem of anxiety, and how it can so easily and quickly get a hold of us, whereby it consumes us and begins to dictate the tenor and the direction of our lives. And again, I, I, I'm trying to be very personal here. I'm simply imagining I'm speaking to one individual for whom this is a real problem. This is a real struggle. I am speaking to you this day. You acknowledge it in your own life. This is something you have or are wrestling with. We are turning now to God's Word, and we are looking for biblical counsel, biblical wisdom. And essentially what I want to say to you is five things. Five things. Truths. Actions, if you like as they arise from this text, this passage of God's Word. And the first is this. If we want to deal with worry, if we want to deal with anxiety, we need to confess. We need to confess. Look with me again at verse 5. I'll read right from the beginning. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. We made it that far last Sunday. Now look at the next statement, right at the end of verse 5. The Lord is at hand, semicolon. It is followed by a command as we enter into verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything. It is a command. Do not be anxious about anything. The Apostle Paul isn't grabbing this command out of the air the Apostle Paul is simply quoting the Lord Jesus Christ himself. You could turn on your own to Matthew chapter 6. It's part of the Sermon on the Mount. And you read the, the second half of Matthew chapter 6. The words of the Lord Jesus as he preaches from the Mount to the disciples, those who are present. And three times you will notice that the Lord Jesus utters the same command. And it is this. Do not be anxious. It is a command. Do not be anxious. A third time. 
Do not be anxious. And the Apostle Paul here is simply citing, quoting the teaching of Christ himself. Do not be anxious about anything. And this is something we need to recognize. That our, when we allow, when we permit worry, anxiety, fear to get the better of us, whereby it is now controlling us. It is calling, if you like, the shots in our lives. We are guilty of disobeying this command. Do not be anxious. Now, I realize that's difficult for us to hear. And I recognize also, I know that as you watch this, there's that sort of live feed on the screen where people can comment. And I'm a bit weary, leery as to what some of the comments might be right now. And I will be watching on Sunday and paying very careful attention. I want to proceed cautiously and carefully here so as to make certain there is no confusion, misunderstanding, or misapplication as to what I am saying. Do not be anxious about anything. Difficult for us to compute and understand that this is a command and that when we do worry, when anxiety does get the better of us, we are guilty of disobeying this command and the first thing we actually need to do is confess and repent of it. it that, that, that is difficult to compute. It is, it is hard for us to grasp because of the day and age in which we live. Now, I'm going carefully and cautiously here. We live in a secular society. That means in our secular society, when it comes to understanding things, and especially when it comes to understanding human behavior, in a secular, naturalistic society, there are only two plausible explanations for human behavior. The first plausible explanation is the biological or what we might call the physiological. The second plausible explanation is the environmental or the sociological. And so in our society, if an individual is struggling with worry, and for several months this individual man or woman has been in the grasp and the clutches of worry and it has manifested itself in panic and nervous, nervousness, irritability, insomnia, loss of appetite because these are the only two plausible explanations for human behavior if you seek help in our society there are only two possible remedies because you see, if the problem is biological or if it is physiological, then the only remedy is medication, hence pharmaceutical salvation. And if the problem can only be environmental or sociological, well then the only remedy is cognitive behavior therapy, a form of psychotherapy, whereby a, psychoanalysis, a psychologist will seek to help, you, help to give you coping mechanisms as you navigate life. This is all that's on the table when it comes to the society in which we live, and far too many believers have imbibed that. Now, careful here before the comments section lights up. Be very careful here. I am not dismissing 
the biological or the physiological. I recognize that there there are factors in our biological makeup that can contribute to panic and anxiety and all of those things. We just need to think, for example, of hormonal changes. Uh, a, a woman, as she gives birth, and the effects upon her body and her hormones, we can think of, of those changes we go through, men and women, later in life, as we get into our 50s and our 60s, and hormone levels changes, our, our, our biological makeup changes. In terms of our, our, our makeup, the, the, yes, we're going through dramatic change, and these hormonal levels, yes, they can have a negative effect on us. That is a medical problem. That is a medical issue about which we must speak with our doctor. That's true. You think even of brain injuries and that individual who's grown up playing hockey or football and there's been a series of concussions and, and that has had an effect on the brain and that is now being manifested in behavior. Yes, that is a medical problem. I acknowledge that. And I also acknowledge the societal or the environmental, the realm of the sociological, that there is such a thing as trauma and traumatic events that affect us and impact us and we must come to grips with these events. I get it. I acknowledge it. But again, the problem is this. In our society, those are the only explanations for human behavior. Those are the only explanations offered given the biological or the environmental, the physiological or the sociological. And that limits the remedies that are therefore given. And the point I want to make is this, and uh, we'll see how this goes over. The point I want to make is this, that while recognizing that these two things are factors on occasion, um, they do not exert the influence that many people ascribe to them today. Uh, we have overdiagnosed anxiety, fear, worry. We have been too quick to seek to remedy these things in in many cases, not all cases, but in many cases. And the reason we have fallen into that problem is because we have fallen into this kind of thinking that there are only two plausible explanations for anxiety, worry, and fear. And this has given rise to the, the idea of an anxiety disorder, of panic disorder. And again, I am not completely dismissing these things. I am acknowledging, however, that they have become dominant in our thinking. And that is all that is offered in many instances. Where in actual fact, I will submit to you that not, in not all, but in most cases, in which we struggle with fear and worry to a level, to a degree where it is controlling us. The problem is not physiological, biological. The problem is not environmental or sociological. My friends, the problem is relational. And this is something our society knows nothing of. That when we come to Scripture, the Bible makes this clear that man's greatest problem and what lies at the root of most of our problems is relational. We are created in the image of God. 
Let that sink in for a moment. We are the pinnacle of God's creation. Fashioned, molded, shaped men and women in the very image and likeness of God. We are fashioned in the image of God for one overarching purpose. It is to know fellowship with God, enjoy communion with God, and find our soul's delight and satisfaction in God. The fall has ruined all of that. The image of God has been marred. Communion and fellowship with God has been lost. And one of the most common words in, the, in Scripture, in the New Testament for sin, is planeo. It is the word from which we get the, our term planet. This idea of wandering. This idea of wandering aimlessly, far from where we belong. Well, that is the effect of sin. That is who we are. We are far from Eden. We are far from who we were intended to be. And our failure to reckon with this and understand the havoc that the fall has had upon man and man's makeup, our failure to recognize this is a failure to come to grips with what is our most fundamental issue. It is relational. And therefore, when we find ourselves succumbing to fear, when we find that worry, anxiety has the upper hand in our lives, again, I want to be so careful here. I am not completely dismissing the biological. I am not completely dismissing the sociological. What I do want to do, however, is put them in their place and understand that at the root of most, and not all, but most of our struggles, when it comes to with anxiety and worry, the root cause is relational. It is vertical. It is because there is something wrong skewed in our relationship with God. Let me just put this in an even bigger context for you. I mean, I have five points to make. We're going to do well to make it through one this morning. We're still on number one. We need to confess. And again, I realize that there is such potential for confusion and misapplication here. Take the word fear, take the word worry, and take the word anxiety. In and of themselves, we want to acknowledge that there is such a thing as natural fear. There is such a thing as what I'm just going to call natural anxiety or natural worry. These are coping mechanisms, and these are good things. These are things that exist that when we recognize something threatening us, well, we're afraid of it. Or, we, or to use the word in a good sense, we do worry about it. And that is a, that is a good thing in its proper place. You know, Allison is sitting there, and just as I see Allison, I, I'm, I'm reminded of an event in our lives almost 30 years ago. We hadn't, hadn't even been married a year, and we, we were living in uh, Angola in southwest uh, Africa at the time and had the opportunity to travel to Victoria Falls in Zimbabwe. And we were there with friends, and the group of us, eight or nine of us, we decided that it might be a good idea to go kayaking on the Zambezi River uh, upstream from Victoria Falls, and we had a beautiful breakfast provided for us by the guide on the banks of the Zambezi. And as we were ready to embark on our kayaking adventure, he just kind of 
looked us all in the eye and said, I just want to remind you this is a wild river. And there are crocodiles. And you don't need to re really worry about the crocodiles unless you fall in the water. But there are also hippos. And hippos are kind of dangerous because they lurk around beneath the surface of the water. And at times they will see a kayak there on the surface and feel threatened. And they might strike from below. And if they strike from below, he then picked up a little twig and he snapped it in half and said, a hippo will vaporize your kayak. And with that little shot in the arm and a word of encouragement, off we went on our kayaking adventure. It was wonderful. Two, three hours there we were out on the Zambezi River. And then toward the end, wouldn't you know it, we're in a little pool in the river. And 20 feet away, all of a sudden, these little heads pop up above the surface of the water, these beady little eyes staring at us. It was five or six hippos. Allison and I, the, the, the speed with which we got out of there, paddling like crazy, fleeing from a perceived threat, driven by what? Fear, worry. That's a good thing. That's a coping mechanism. When something threatens us, we ought to fear it. We ought to fe feel a little anxious. We're not denying that for one moment. But the point is this. That kind of fear or anxiety or worry, there is a dividing line where what is natural fear, what is natural worry, what is natural anxiety as we see something that is threatening and then we take certain measures to avoid it, that is good. But that can quickly morph into sin. Sinful fear, sinful worry, sinful anxiety. And it morphs into sin. What is the dividing line? What is the line of demarcation between that which is natural and that which is sinful? It is this. It is when we begin to ascribe ultimate power to the object of our fear. Or ultimate value to the object of our fear. And so we are in effect saying, I believe that object of my fear, that cause of my worry, my anxiety, it is of greater power than God. Or it is of greater value than God. And when we begin to view things through that lens, natural fear, worry, will quickly morph into sinful fear, worry, whereby we are now ascribing divine properties to the object of our fear. It is now controlling us. It is now dictating our lives. It is now calling the shots. Do I dare go there? I dare go there. COVID-19. All right? Virus, novel, unknown to us, still not fully understood, and obviously highly contagious, and obviously very dangerous for certain segments of our population, those with respiratory issues, preconditions, and um, our seniors, over 60, 65, however you define a senior. We should fear that. That's reasonable. That is natural fear. And we might even want to take precautionary measures in order to limit the potential for the spread of that virus and our own contraction of that virus. And that might involve gloves or a mask or staying at home or keeping our distance from people. That's fine. I'm not going to comment on it any more than that. But now let's imagine this scenario. There you are at home. And what are we in now? Two months since this shutdown, it was the middle of March, middle of May, more or less. And um, your fear, however, 
is a, is, is a little more than just taking precautionary measures and trying to get on and glorify God in the midst of less than ideal circumstances. No, your fear and worry about this, boy, it has a hold on you. Um, it's all you can think about. You, you wake up in the middle of the night, 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock in the morning, tossing and turning, can't get back to sleep. Your relationship with your spouse has deteriorated because this is just front and center, irritability, nervousness, whatever, because of how you're coping with this. Um, the children, boy, they've put up with a lot. The dog, don't even go there, what that poor thing's put up with. You know, you, you go outside, you won't even talk to your neighbor over the fence. Um, this, is, this is consuming you, it is dictating how you feel, how you interact with others, how you see life. Okay, what was a natural fear has morphed into a sinful fear, a sinful worry, a sinful anxiety. Why? Because at some point along the way there, you have ascribed either ultimate power or ultimate value to a virus. You've ascribed ultimate power to a virus when in actual fact, ultimate power belongs to God alone. But you've ascribed ultimate power to that virus and you know you have because it's that virus that is now controlling you and has a hold on you, and your outlook, your perception, your relationships, everything. It's dictating your life. Or you've ascribed ultimate value to something. Perhaps you've ascribed ultimate value to being in control. You're a control freak. And this isn't what life was supposed to be like. You weren't supposed to be trapped at home for two months and the kids at home, they're supposed to be in school or whatever. You're supposed to be able to go out. You're supposed to be able to go on vacation. All of these plans were supposed to happen and you've lost control, but you, you so value control. It's lost, ripped out of your hands. And there you are now an anxious mess. What has happened? You've ascribed ultimate value to your control and you're giving it more value than to God himself whereby now the object of your fear, the object of your worry, the object of your anxiety is now in control of you. When we, when we, when we get away with all, pull back all the layers and we get deeper and we get deeper and we get to the heart of the, the issue, we soon discover that what lays at the bottom, what, what is there lurking behind always at the bottom of sinful fear, sinful worry, sinful anxiety is good old-fashioned idolatry. We are struggling with this externally and it has a grip on us and is controlling us because we have given divine properties to something to which it does not belong. And that something is now governing, dictating, and controlling our lives. As David Powlinson put it so succinctly, if what you most value can be taken away or destroyed, then you set yourself up for anxiety. It bears, it's worth repeating. If what you most value can be taken away or destroyed, then you set yourself up for anxiety. Oh, bring it all back to where we started. The point I wanted to make was this. We must confess that if worry has the better of us, and if we have crossed that line between what is natural to what is sinful because we are ascribing ultimate power to something or ultimate value to something, then at the root of our problem is not something biological. You don't need meds for that. 
It is not sociological. You don't need psychotherapy for that. It is relational. And we must confess it for what it is. It is sin. And we must repent of it. The second thing I want to say is this. Here we are in our little conversation. You've come to me. You weren't expecting all of that. But you've sat there and you've listened and you've taken it all. And I'm preaching to myself. I wrestle with this and still working through all of this and struggling with this. But here's the second thing I would say to you. It is this. Uh, we need to believe. If, if this is our struggle. We need to believe. And I think that's what Paul is alluding to there in, in that statement at the end of verse 5. And notice its relationship to the command, right? The command at the verse, start of verse 6, do not be anxious about anything. But how does he preface it? The Lord is at hand. We need to believe that. The Lord is at hand. And Paul might be referring, he might be referring to Christ's soon return. So it might be this, this expectation that the Lord Jesus could return at any moment and we are to live our lives and orient our lives accordingly and, and, and develop and nurture this kind of heavenly perspective and eternal perspective. That might be his point or his point might simply be this and this is where I lean without being dogmatic that he is celebrating the fact that the Lord is close, close proximity. And what he has celebrated in this passage, and this is what we saw last week, is that our God is the God of peace. And he is the God of peace because he is our Redeemer. And he is the God of peace because he is our Father. And we have been brought into a reconciled relationship with him. We now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. As Paul says later in his epistle to the Romans, chapter 8, verse 1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We will never again come under the wrath of God. We are God's children. And we are members of God's family. His promise, I will never leave you nor forsake you, is His promise to us. That is not a promise given to the world. That is not a promise generally given to everyone, unbelievers included. That is a promise given exclusively to the people of God. That God Himself, the Creator of heavens and earth, God Himself who governs all things and declares what will be the end from the beginning. This God who works all things according to the counsel of His will. He claims us as His own. He claims us as His children. The Lord is at hand. You could almost put the word therefore in there. Do not be anxious about anything. Oh, please recognize who's on your side. And when we recognize who is on our side, when we recognize that God is for us and He's not against us, when we appropriate, for example, that beautiful promise in Romans chapter 8 that He works all things for good to those who love Him, to those who are called according to His purpose, when these become realities in our lives and when we're living in accordance with these promises... Oh, the overwhelming flood of peace that we enjoy in the soul. It is, as Paul says in verse 7, a peace, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding. The Lord Jesus himself in John 14 commands us, believe in God, believe also in me. Oh, believe in God, believe also in me. 
commenting on that verse, the great missionary of a couple centuries ago, Hudson Taylor, wrote the following. Jot this down. Please remember this. We don't need a great faith. Your people talk in those terms today. Oh, he's got such a great faith. I wish I had a great faith. We don't need a great faith, but faith in a great God. That's what we need. Faith in a great God. You're anxious. You're worried. Oh, my friend, do not be anxious about anything. Why? The Lord is at hand. We need to believe. Here's my third word of counsel to you. We need to pray. And that brings us into verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but what? In everything. By prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Thanksgiving, rejoicing, joy. It's a theme that looms large. It's big in this epistle. Let me just take you on a brief journey. Flip back to chapter 1. Just quickly, you can study these and glean from these later, these references. Look at chapter 1, verse 18. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Flip over to chapter 2. Look at verse 17. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering, even if I die, that's what he's saying, even if I'm martyred upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Same chapter all the way down to verse 28. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. Oh, we could unpack that. There's a living example of what Paul is now commanding in chapter 4. But just one more reference. Go back to these later. Meditate upon them. Let them seep down into your heart. Chapter 3, verse 1. On. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. And now we come to chapter 4, this great command, do not be anxious about anything. This should be your attitude to life. This should be your approach in everything, absolutely everything, by prayer and supplication. He doesn't end it there. He doesn't say by prayer and supplication, let your request be made known to God. No, our prayers and our supplications and our petitions and our pleadings and our beggings as we disburden ourselves before God and we bring to Him our fears and our worries and anxieties. It is to be marked and characterized and saturated by what? With thanksgiving, with rejoicing. Oh, we need to pray. Oh, we do. Certainly. And we need to lament. Definitely. Just read the book of Psalms. A third of the Psalms are laments. Yes, we need to pour out our souls and our agonies and our perplexities before God. But as we do so, we do so with thanksgiving and rejoicing and praising. Oh, my friends, please, please, please remember who wrote these words. The Apostle Paul. Please remember what this man has been through. Remember, he's writing to the church at Philippi. Remember how the church of Philippi was founded. It's Acts 16. Paul and Silas, they're there, second missionary journey. And there are some converts, little churches established. And on one particular day, Paul casts a demon. Do you remember this? Casts a demon out of a little slave girl. 
Her owners are less than impressed. Why? Because she had been the source of income, fortune-telling, whatever. They drag Paul and Silas before the magistrate. They are stripped. They are beaten with rods, bruised, beaten, bloodied, cast into a prison cell, chained in the stocks. And what do we read in Acts 16, verse 25, at midnight? Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, praising. I know that's difficult. I'm not pretending otherwise. Here's the question. Do you think they felt like praising God? Do you think they felt like rejoicing? No, this was something they turned their minds intentionally to do. This is something they determined in their hearts to do. Likewise, we need to pray. And when we pray with intentionality, we must turn ourselves to praise God. Here's what that might look like. Just a suggestion. Lord, I never thought I'd be unemployed with, without any prospects. Lord, I never thought I'd be in a miserable marriage. Lord, I never thought I'd be weeping over children who have wandered from the faith. Lord, I never thought, I never expected I would bury my loved one so soon. Lord, I never thought I'd face this kind of opposition. Lord, I never thought I would experience this kind of ejection, rejection. Oh, Lord, the, the worries, yes, the fears, the anxieties, the perplexities. But, Lord, I'm running and turning to you for sustaining and strengthening grace. I remember that every, I remember and I celebrate that every good and perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of lights in whom there is no variation nor shadow due to change. And even in the midst of my anguish, I thank you for your matchless grace and boundless mercy. I thank you for forgiving me my sins. I thank you for adopting me into your family. I thank you for all the spiritual blessings that I possess in Christ Jesus. I thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit. I thank you for your word. I thank you for the coming day when you will wipe away every tear. I thank you and praise you for the coming new heavens and new earth in which righteousness will dwell for all eternity. Well, my friend, are you struggling with anxiety, sinful anxiety? Well, we need to pray, and we need to pray with thanksgiving. My fourth word of counsel to you is this. We need to think. And we're going to go quickly here because the time is quickly passing by. And let me just give these to you in as few words as I possibly can. Here is the fourth word of counsel. We need to think. And so look with me what Paul says in verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Here is something that a lot of people don't believe and some people even refuse to accept. They think they are the victim of their anxiety. They think they are the victim of their worry, their victim of their fear. 
But here is something that the Bible teaches and teaches clearly. Friends, we can control our anxiety by controlling our thinking. The Apostle Paul pens in 2 Timothy 1, 7, God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Martin Lloyd-Jones, famous preacher in England back in the 1950s, 60s, wrote the following. If you lie awake at night at hours for hours, I can tell you what you've been doing. You've been going around in circles. You just keep going over the same old miserable details. That is not thought. That is the absence of thought. It is a failure to think. It means that something else is controlling your thought and governing it. And it leads to that wretched, unhappy state called worry. We meditate. We meditate all the time. Our minds are constantly going and we are continually thinking about something. Sadly, for far too many Christians, their minds are consumed with enticing thoughts, discouraging thoughts, embittering thoughts, distracting thoughts. And all the while, what we really need to do is fix our fluttering minds on the Word of God. All that is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, worthy of praise. This is what must saturate our minds. If you're a tea drinker, you know how it goes. You put the kettle on and wait for it to boil over. And then you warm up the kettle, right? Get it ready. And then you throw your tea bags in there, or perhaps you're, you know, old school, in go the tea leaves. And you pour in that water, and then you sit and you wait. And what are you waiting for? For that tea to saturate the water, to be absorbed by the water, until you get that perfect flavor ready to drink. That's what thinking is about. That's what meditating is about. It is actively each and every day determining that we are going to set our minds on those things which are pleasing to God, glorifying to God. It is seeking to saturate our minds with the Word of God, whereby the Word dictates our lives, thereby pushing out anxiety and fear and worry. And now here is the fifth word of counsel. We're going to conclude with this one. We need to practice. We need to do. We need to act. Look at what Paul says in verse 9. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And what? The God of peace will be with you. What had they learned, received, heard, seen in Paul? Well, I guess the simple answer is this. It's everything he said in this epistle to this point. Go all the way back to chapter 1, verse 1, right through to this point. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, put these things into practice. I think, I think we can sum it all up 
And that tremendous statement, heart-stirring declaration that Paul makes back in chapter 1, verse 21. For to me, to live is Christ. To die is gain. For me, to live is Christ. To die is gain. To practice these things is to follow the example of the Apostle Paul. And it is to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ in our lives as an inestimable treasure in comparison to which all else pales and fades away. Here is a sure remedy for anxiety. Oh, when we can say with the psalmist, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. When our greatest treasure is secure, we are at peace. It begs an obvious question. When our greatest treasure is secure, we enjoy peace. The question is this. What is our greatest treasure? The hymn writer put it so well, and may we take this to heart as we conclude. Take the world, but give me Jesus. All its joys are but a name. But his love abideth ever through eternal years the same. Take the world, but give me Jesus, sweetest comfort of my soul. With my Savior watching o'er me, I can sing, though billows roll. Take the world, but give me Jesus. In his cross my trust shall be, till with clearer, brighter vision, face to face. My Lord, I see. Our Heavenly Father, how we long for that day. We do pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Oh, how our hearts are attuned to heaven's glory. And how we long with great anticipation as to what it will mean to behold the glory of God in the face of Christ. And here will be the complete and full remedy for every pain, every struggle, every worry, every anxiety what it will be to bask in the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ for all eternity. Oh, our Father, help us to live in the reality of that today. Day by day in the struggles of life, in the challenges of life, the trials of life. And may you give us enabling grace, equip us by your Holy Spirit, strengthen us by your word to heed this simple command. Do not be anxious about anything. But in all things, may we make our petitions known to you with gratefulness, praise, and thanksgiving. Help us, we pray, our Father. And we ask it of you in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. You are good, you are good. When there's nothing good in me, you are love, you are love. On display for all to see. You are light, you are light, when the darkness closes in. You are hope, you are hope, you have covered all my